0: Story 15 from Day and Night Stories by Algernon Blackwood This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Story 15 The Tradition The noises outside the little flat at first were very disconcerting after living in the country they made sleep difficult. At the cottage in Sussex where the family had lived, night brought deep, comfortable silence, unless the wind was high when the pine trees round the duck pond made a sound like surf, or if the gale was from the southwest, the orchard roared a bit unpleasantly. But in London it was very different. Sleep was easier in the daytime than at night. For after nightfall, the rumble of the traffic became spasmodic instead of continuous the motor horns startled like warnings of alarm. After comparative silence, the furious rushing of a taxicab touched the nerves. From dinner till eleven o'clock the streets subsided gradually. Then came the army from theaters, parties, and late dinners hurrying home to bed. The motor horns during this hour were lively and incessant, like bugles of a regiment moving into battle. The parents rarely retired until this attack was over. If quick about it, sleep was possible then before the flying of the night birds, an uncertain squadron, screamed half the street awake again. But these finally disposed of, a delightful hush settled down upon the neighbourhood, profounder far than any piece of the countryside. The deep rumble of the produce wagons coming into the big London markets from the farms, generally about 3am, held no disturbing quality. But sometimes, in the stillness of very early morning, when streets were empty and pavements all deserted, there was a sound of another kind that was startling and unwelcome, for it was ominous. It came with a clattering violence that made nerves quiver and forced the heart to pause and listen. A strange resonance was in it, a volume of sound, moreover, that was hardly justified by its cause, for it was hooves a horse swept hurrying up the deserted street and was close upon the building in a moment. It was audible suddenly, no gradual approach from a distance, but as though it turned a corner from soft ground that muffled the hooves onto the echoing hard paving that emphasised the dreadful clatter. Nor did it die away again when once the house was reached. It ceased as abruptly as it came. The hooves did not go away. It was the mother who heard them first and drew her husband's attention to their disagreeable quality. It is the mail vans, dear, he answered. They go at four a.m. to catch the early trains into the country. She looked up sharply as though something in his tone surprised her. But there's no sound of wheels, she said. And then, as he did not reply, she added gravely, You have heard it too, John. I can tell. I have, he said. I have heard it twice. And they looked at one another searchingly, each trying to read the other's mind. She did not question him. He did not propose writing to complain in a newspaper. Both understood something that neither of them understood. "'I heard it first. she then said softly, the night before Jack got the fever. And as I listened, I heard him crying. But when I went in to see, he was asleep.' The noise stopped just outside the building. There was a shadow in her eyes as she said this, and a hush crept in between her words. I did not hear it go, she said this almost beneath her breath. He looked a moment at the ground, then coming towards her he took her in his arms and kissed her, and she clung very tightly to him. Sometimes, he said in a quiet voice, a mounted policeman passes down the street, I think. It is a horse, she answered. But whether it was a question of mere corroboration he did not ask, for at that moment the doctor arrived, and the question of little Jack's health became the paramount matter of immediate interest. The great man's verdict was uncommonly disquieting. All that night they sat up in the sick-room. It was strangely still, as though by one accord the traffic avoided the house where a little boy hung between life and death. The motorhorns even— had a muffled sound, and heavy drays and wagons used the wide streets. There were fewer taxicabs about, or else they flew by noiselessly. Yet no straw was down. The expense prohibited that. And towards morning, very early, the mother decided to watch alone. She had been a trained nurse before her marriage, accustomed when she was younger to long vigils. You go down, dear, and get a little sleep, she urged in a whisper. He's quiet now. At five o'clock I'll come for you to take my place. "'You'll fetch me at once,' he whispered, if—' Then hesitated as though breath failed him. A moment he stood there staring from her face to the bed. "'If you hear anything,' he finished. She nodded, and he went downstairs to his study, not to his bedroom. He left the door ajar. He sat in darkness, listening. Mother, he knew, was listening too, beside the bed. His heart was very full, for he did not believe the boy could live till morning. The picture of the room was all the time before his eyes the shaded lamp, the table with the medicines, the little wasted figure beneath the blankets, and mother close beside it, listening. He sat alert, ready to fly upstairs at the smallest cry. But no sound broke the stillness. The entire neighborhood was silent. All London slept. He heard the clock strike three in the dining room at the end of the corridor. It was still enough for that. There was not even the heavy rumble of a single produce wagon, though usually they passed about this time on their way to Smithfield and Covent Garden markets. He waited, far too anxious to close his eyes. At four o'clock he would go up and relieve her vigil. Four, he knew, was the time when life sinks to its slowest ebb. Then, in the middle of his reflections, thought stopped dead, and, it seemed, his heart stopped too. Far away, becoming nearer with extraordinary rapidity, a sharp, clear sound broke out of the surrounding stillness, a horse's hooves. At first it was so distant that it might have been almost on the high roads of the country, but the amazing speed with which it came closer and the sudden increase of the beating sound was such that by the time he turned his head it seemed to have entered the street outside. It was within a hundred yards of the building. The next second it was before the very door, and something in him blenched. He knew a moment's complete paralysis. The abrupt cessation of the heavy clatter was strangest of all. It came like lightning. It struck. It paused. It did not go away again. Yet the sound of it was still beating in his ears as he dashed upstairs three steps at a time. It seemed in the house as well, on the stairs behind him, in the little passageway, inside the very bedroom. It was an appalling sound. Yet he entered a room that was quiet, orderly and calm. It was silent. Beside the bed his wife sat holding Jack's hand and stroking it. She was soothing him. Her face was very peaceful no sound, but her gentle whisper was audible. He controlled himself by a tremendous effort, but his face betrayed his consternation and distress. Hush, she said beneath her breath. He's sleeping much more calmly now. The crisis, God bless, is over, I do believe. I dared not leave him. He saw in a moment that she was right, and an untenable relief passed over him, He sat down beside her, very cold, yet perspiring with heat. "'You heard?' he asked after a pause. "'Nothing,' she replied quickly, "'except his pitiful wild words when the delirium was on him. "'It's past. It lasted but a moment, or I'd have called you.' He stared closely into her tired eyes. "'And his words?' he asked in a whisper whereupon she told him quietly that the little chap had sat up with wide-opened eyes and talked excitedly about a great-great horse, he heard, but that was not coming for him. He laughed and said he would not go with it because he was not ready yet. Some scrap of talk he had overheard from us, she added, when we discussed the traffic once. "'But you heard nothing?' he repeated almost impatiently. "'No, she had heard nothing. After all, then—' he had dozed a moment at his chair four weeks later jack entirely convalescent was playing a restricted game of hide and seek with his sister in the flat it was really a forbidden joy owing to noise and risk of breakages but he had unusual privileges after his grave illness it was dusk the lamps in the street were being lit quietly remember your mother's resting in her room were the father's orders She had just returned from a week by the sea, recuperating from the strain of nursing for so many nights. The traffic rolled and boomed along the streets below. "'Jack, do come on and hide. It's your turn. I hid last.' But the boy was standing spellbound by the window, staring hard at something on the pavement. Sybil called and tugged in vain, tears threatened. Jack would not budge. He declared he saw something. Oh, you're always seeing something. I wish you'd go and hide. It's only because you can't think of a good place, really. Look, he cried in a voice of wonder. And as he said it, his father rose quickly from his chair before the fire. Look, the child repeated with delight and excitement. It's a great big horse, and it's perfectly white all over. His sister joined him at the window. Where? Where? I can't see it. Oh, do show me. Their father was standing close behind them now. I heard it. He was whispering, but so low the children did not notice him. His face was the colour of chalk. Straight in front of our door, stupid! Can't you see it? Oh, I do wish it had come for me. It's such a beauty. And he clapped his hands with pleasure and excitement. Quick, quick! It's going away again! But while the children stood half-squabbling by the window... Their father leaned over a sofa in the adjoining room, above a figure whose heart and sleep had quietly stopped its beating. The great white horse had come, but this time he had not only heard its wonderful arrival, he had also heard it go. It seemed he heard the awful hoofs beat down the sky far, far away, and very swiftly, dying into silence, finally up among the stars. End of the tradition.